Friends, it's been great worshiping with you so far, wherever you are in the world. And as we continue in this worship service, we come now to God's word. And there's been a through line as we started this new year and this new season. We're going through leadership lessons from the book of Nehemiah, a phenomenal book in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. And a reminder that as we work through this in this week seven of this sermon series, eight weeks in total, that if you've missed any of them, you can, of course, get caught up on our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for Bel Air Church, and you'll see as we mark our way through this remarkable story thousands of years ago, how God used Nehemiah to be a godly leader for God's purposes that God is calling each of us to step out in faith and to be used by God, not just to be people of impact and of influence, but godly leaders. A reminder, every week I've been saying this, this phenomenal quote from a Christian author, a great leader and speaker and writer on leadership by the name of Ken Blanchard. He says this, that if in any way you influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, you engage in leadership. And this is true in our lives every single day. Every time we interact with somebody else, whether in person, with our words, with our actions, with our body language, when we send a a text or an email, we send out a social media post, when we look out our window at somebody driving next to us, how we interact with people in line at the grocery store, every moment of every day when we interact with somebody else in some subtle ways and in other significant ways, we influence other people's thoughts and actions, and in doing so, we engage in leadership. The question is, what kind of leader do you want to be? What kind of influence do you want to have? You see, some of the greatest leaders have led people to do atrocious things. So this sermon series, though practical, is not about just getting tips to be a good or a great leader in your life, but ultimately to be a godly leader that steps out and follows the work that God calls us each to. If you haven't been with us, uh, this man, Nehemiah, was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. He was in exile. And as a top-ranking official in the Persian Empire, he gets word from some people that Jerusalem, 500 miles away, the place that God had established for God's self, for God's people to dwell, who many Decades and centuries earlier had been abandoned. A group had gone there and rebuilt the temple, but the the city and the walls were in ruins. And so a group comes to Nehemiah and they share with him what's going on. And he's grieved. He, He fasts and he prays and he feels like God is calling him to go to the king at great risk to his own life, his own safety, his own stability, and to ask the king of Persia not only for permission to go to Jerusalem, but ask for permission to have the resources to rebuild the wall. And the king, because of the gracious hand of God, gives him permission, gives him the resources. Nehemiah makes the long journey, perhaps weeks, to Jerusalem all the way from Susa in modern-day Iran, and finds himself in that place assessing the problems. He looks for the facts, not the fictions. Once he develops his plan, he recruits the leaders. And in 52 days, they accomplish what couldn't have been done. In 90 years before that, they rebuild the wall. Last week in the sermon, we completed the wall in the narrative. And now in chapter 7, a transition happens. You could say it this way. Nehemiah is promoted. And today we're going to talk about the promotion of a godly leader. 
Now, let me quickly say that uh, in the world, and worldly thinking, whenever we use the word promotion, we often think of somebody who, for whatever reason, is uh, moved up in the organization. They have greater responsibility. Often tied to that, they have a, a different and greater title. And often, in different ways, they have uh, greater salary or benefits. They have uh, more power, more influence within the organization. And often when we see people who are promoted, things begin to unravel in their life. And what's really interesting is I observe, you know, people that I've known as I look out on the world, I see people who are great at one thing and they are promoted into the greater thing and they don't have the skill set for it or they lose their passion for it. You know, some people are the greatest sales people and they get promoted to manager and they don't know how to manage. Some people are phenomenal entrepreneurs and they get to the place where now they need to be an executive and they can't do it. This isn't just true in the workplace. I see it really in every sphere of life. There's people who, who try so hard to get into school and then they get into school and they're like, oh, oh, the homework. There's people who try so hard to get a job and once they get into the job, they're like, oh, my job. There's people who try so hard to get married and they get married and finally they're like, oh, my marriage. There's people who try so hard to have kids and they finally have kids. And they're like, oh, my kids. What is it that happens when we transition from the, the building stage, the design stage, the entrepreneurial stage, to the preservation stage, the, the management stage, the, the expansion stage. You see, in life, just because we get promoted, and this isn't just in work, this is in every area of relationship in our life as we grow in different areas, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have all the skill sets nor the ability to thrive in that new reality. But today we're going to talk about a transition that happens in Nehemiah's life, a promotion as it were. But I also want to reframe the idea of promotion in God's kingdom, in God's economy. You see, again, in the world, promotion means you have something greater, more responsibility, perhaps more pay. In God's kingdom, a promotion simply means that God has called you to the next thing. And sometimes... In the countercultural, upside down kingdom of God view of the world, the world might say when somebody is promoted by God into the next thing and they feel God is calling them to the next thing, the world might say, Why did you take that demotion? You know, I remember this moment many, many years ago. There was somebody who was part of our church family who uh, played for the NFL. They were starting quarterback, they were known nationally. They had. Uh, uh, racked up, you know, amazing statistics, and it was towards the end of their career. And they were, as the world would say, they were demoted to second string. You know, a lot of people, they can't handle that. Their mind, uh, perhaps so tied to their identity in the work that they do, become unmoored. They become disoriented. And this can happen not only in relationships, it can happen in sports, it can happen uh, when we're fired from jobs or when the world might demote us out of something. 
But this follower of Christ, who was a former star, first string quarterback, you know what he said to me when I had a conversation? I said, you know, how are you feeling? Are you doing okay? And he says, you know what? God promoted me to second string. And it, and it just, it hit my ears so differently than how the world would speak. And he went on to say that he felt that God had called him at that point in his career to step aside so that a younger quarterback could move in. And he wanted to play the, the role of a seasoned veteran leader, not only among the second string, but amongst the whole team. He wanted to be an encourager, a supporter, a cheerleader. And he literally, he used the language of, I was promoted by God to second string. What a phenomenal perspective. And so as we go through this sermon today, we see the transition that happens in Nehemiah's life. What a great reminder that we're gonna face transitions in our life. And just because the world says it's a promotion doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing or it's gonna go better. But also when the world says, you know, you've just been demoted and perhaps you feel that God's calling you into it, it doesn't mean things are gonna get worse. So this transition, as we will see in chapter seven, 52 days to build the wall. And now, now that this gift has been given, a fortified city, they now have to guard it. And it's so true that sometimes in our life we, we receive gifts and it's shiny and it's new and it's, it's novel and we treasure it. And as the days and the weeks and the months go by, we, we devalue it. I mean, think about the moment you receive a brand new phone. You know, those moments, I've had them in my life, you know, a brand new phone. I, I almost feel like I need to wear, you know, just white gloves. I don't want to scratch it. I don't want to smudge it. I, I'm so worried I'm going to drop it. You know, and within days, within weeks, it becomes part of me. And, you know, I'm misplacing it. I'm dropping it on the ground. I'm, you know, it, it gets scratched up and scuffed up. The same is true, not just in products, but also in our relationships, or in our roles that we might have in our places of work. You know, the newness of being a parent, the newness of being a newlywed, the newness of being a new employee, the newness of being a boss, the newness of being whatever it might be can sometimes fade away. So how do you keep that passion? How do you keep that interest? Well, we'll discover today. Let me read for us. This is Nehemiah uh, chapter uh, seven. I'm gonna read for us just verses one through five as we dive in here. And we're gonna cover the whole chapter, but I'm just gonna read uh, just the first five verses. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani charge over Jerusalem along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be open until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their watch posts and others before their own houses. You see, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Then my God put it into my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who were the first to come back and I found the following written in it. It's my friends, the reading of God's word. As we say every week, thanks be 
to God. Okay, we'll finish chapter seven in a bit. But again, this transition happens. The rest of Nehemiah is the next stage of Nehemiah's leadership. You know, in some ways, you might think that the whole of the Nehemiah story is just about building the wall, but that's only the first chapter of the story. I mean, you could think perhaps that Nehemiah, you just did this thing that nobody could do for 90 years. Take a break. You know, go on a victory tour for a bit. But he immediately is called to the next thing. And this is so important because I believe that God has promoted him to the next thing. Everything that he does, he feels that God is leading him to do. And now that they've been given this remarkable fortified city, they have to guard it. He goes from perhaps wearing the entrepreneur hat to the executive hat. He goes from the building role to now a broad leadership role. It's been really interesting in this season here at Bel Air on our physical campus. We've been having on most Sundays on our physical campus an entrepreneur's forum. And we've invited different entrepreneurs who are followers of Christ from a variety of different industries to share their story and their journey of how they put into practice their faith in Jesus in the workplace. And time and time again, many of these entrepreneurs have said that one of the hardest parts of the journey was after they had designed a product, after they had taken a company public to a new stage that required a very different type of leadership. And what's interesting is I've heard these stories is that many of them have said that, you know, I wasn't cut out for the next stage. I had to adjust. I had to bring the right people around me. And I believe that as we see here in Nehemiah, that he realizes that who he was to build the wall couldn't be the same person to help govern the city and to be the governor of Judah for the next 12 years. So there's three things that I see here, three things that I think we can apply to our lives. And the three things are this. The godly leaders, they multiply their impact. They measure what God cares about. And then finally, they meet the needs as they arise. All right, so the first one, godly leaders multiply their impact. We heard it. Let's go back to it. Verse one, he sets up the doors and listen to the people he enlists. Gatekeepers, singers, Levites, and then to his brother, charge over Jerusalem. And then Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. In other words, he multiplies his impact knowing that he can, as an individual person, he can't do the role of what the many can do. And the roles are gatekeepers, they're worship leaders, they're priests, basically the ancient version of a mayor and the ancient version of the chief of police. You see, godly leaders, they multiply their impact. Now, again, this whole sermon series isn't just for people who see themselves as leaders in the workplace. Again, as Ken Blanchard says, I'm going to keep coming back to it. If you in any way influence somebody else's thoughts or actions, you engage in leadership. Okay, so what would this look like, let's say, within your family? And that can be with your kids. It could be with a spouse. It could be with a parent. It could be with uh, siblings. There is this reality that maintaining and cultivating 
And growing a relationship takes a lot of passion, takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of intentionality. But I also believe it takes you multiplying your impact through more people around you. If you want to have a healthy relationship with your kids, you need to invite more people into your life to pour into them. If you want to have a healthy relationship with your spouse, you need to invite more people into your life to pour into the two of you. If you want to have a healthy relationship with your parents, you need to invite more people into your lives. You see, there's this great truth that is very, very counterculture, very, very different. That actually when you invite the right people to speak into your life, which at first might feel like you are losing time, giving away time to other people in your kid's life, your spouse's life, your parent's life, your sibling's life. In actual fact, your household, your family, your kids, your spouse becomes enriched. The most impactful fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and brothers are people who know they can't do it alone. Now, I don't know where you live, but you need to be in community and you need to surround yourself with people who in many ways are gonna reinforce the values, who are gonna remind you of the things that are worth pursuing, who are gonna pray for you, to encourage you, who are gonna protect you. You see, real impact, real leadership in every sphere of influence, whether at home or in the workplace, is multiplying your impact. Now, who and what are the type of people that he invites in? You have the roles, but there's also something deeper. There's a deeper character that is revealed. You see, there's people who are focused on the work, who are faithful in life and fearful of the Lord. You see, they're focused in the work. The gatekeepers were responsible for gatekeeping. The worship leaders were responsible for worship leading. The mayor of the town, that was his role. He wasn't the chief of police. And so let's talk about organizations, for example. It is so key to have, uh, as Jim Collins says, not only the right people on the bus, but the people in the right seats on the bus. You see, there's different roles that are played within organizations. On a movie set, imagine if the director of photography was doing the same role as the writer, or if the writer thought they were the producer. It would be absolute chaos if the actor thought they were the director. You see, it's so important to multiply our impact and, and the greatest godliest leaders are people who realize that it requires many different roles in their lives. I took a class in seminary on mentoring, phenomenal class by uh, a mentoring guru and giant in that field by the name of Bobby Clinton. And he talked about eight different types of mentors. You know, mentor is such a big word. And you might want mentors for your kids. You might want mentors for your marriage. You want, might want mentors for uh, an employee, a mentor for a friend. Eight different types of mentors. There's encouragers, there's coaches, there's sponsors, there's teachers, there's disciplers, and, and three others. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable when you can see Let's take your kids. 
I need different people to pour into my kid's life. I remember again in seminary, I took this class on youth ministry and Chap Clark, who was this giant in the field of youth ministry, he talked about the tight rope of adolescence. And he talked about how kids, when they go from being completely dependent upon their parents, needing to walk the tight rope of adolescence to finally get to the other side of being an interdependent adult. You know, you think of a tightrope high up, a lot of risks, they could fall. And so Chap Clark says that what each adolescent needs is seven different adult mentors in their life that are giving the same consistent message. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's being a parent of one of their friends. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's the youth pastor. Maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's an extended family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. And those seven different individuals all communicating the same message are kind of like the, the net that holds them. You know, now that my son is nine years old, I've got a four-year-old, of course, there are things that I will continually say to my son, trying to, to teach him, to, to encourage him, to raise him. But in some ways, I can tell he just, you know, he doesn't want to hear it from me. But then somebody else in his life will say the same thing and all of a sudden he eats it up. And in that moment, I can't get jealous. I need to be able to multiply my impact as a parent and to, to look for people to be in his life, to be intentional about that, to pour into him as well. But people play different roles and we need to understand how important it is to have different roles in different places of our lives. So it's not just focused in work, but it's also faithful in life. Again, let's go back to the text. It says about both Hanani and uh, Hananiah, verse two, I gave my brother Hananiah charge over Jerusalem along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than any. Now, if you remember, you go all the way back to chapter one, Back when Nehemiah was living in Susa, he is the cupbearer to the king. He's busy doing his work. And all of a sudden, it is Hanani and a few select men who bring word to him from 500 miles away from Jerusalem that the city is in ruins. Here we see Hanani mentioned again. And I wonder, back in verse uh, three of chapter one, when it says Hanani and a few select men, I wonder if Hananiah, who's mentioned here, who becomes the chief of police, I wonder, was he one of those select men? We don't know, but we do know Hanani was aware of the problem long before Nehemiah realized it. In other words, his faithfulness to care for Jerusalem and the rebuilding of its walls predated Nehemiah. And Nehemiah remembers that. And he chooses Hananiah and Hananiah as faithful people in life. They have this proven track record of showing up, of caring, of being involved. And he chooses them to be the mayor and the chief of police. You know, there's a temptation for some when we get into a new role to fire everybody and to build our team. And as we multiply our impact, it's absolutely essential that we might look across the organization. Uh, we might look across uh, the nonprofit. 
uh, we might consider uh, whatever role we find ourselves in, whatever setting we find ourselves in, to be able to identify who are the people that have been faithful long before I got here. Who are the people that have been showing up? Who have stuck with it through thick and thin? You see, sometimes new blood is essential, but also there's that long faithfulness paired with the zeal of newness that is a remarkable, supernatural combo. So it's not just uh, focused in the work. It's not just faithful in life, but it's also fearful of the Lord. Now, I want to say something. You know, the word fearful can elicit many different things. And whenever you see in the Bible uh, the fear of the Lord, it means something very different than when you uh, walk into and become fearful in a horror film. This is not about terror. This is not about you running for your life. This is about being in the presence of the holiness of God and being overwhelmed by the majesty and the splendor and the perfection and the beauty and the glory. And you are riveted. There's tremendous respect in the presence of greatness. A fear of the Lord doesn't take the Lord for granted. Uh, The fear of the Lord doesn't, dismiss the Lord because something else seems more important. Every fiber of your being is focused on what is before you. You've heard me share stories in the past of how I've been on hikes at different parts of uh, the world. And whenever I find myself right on the edge of a massive cliff, I forget about my to-do list. I forget about all the things that I've been worrying about the day before. I forget about anything ahead, and I am fully present. In that moment, I am, I am fearful, not, not terrified. I'm not closing my eyes, you know, scared. I'm not running for my life. But there is this sobering sense of tremendous respect for that which is before me. And that is just a thimble size compared to the Pacific Ocean of what it means to be fearful of the Lord. You see, this is much more than just knowing about God. This is more than just being able to quote a few verses about God. This is about having an encounter with the majestic maker of heaven and earth in the sense that you see just how broken, how insignificant, how fleeting you are. And yet when you are in the presence of the God of scripture, you also realize in that moment that God loves you that God adores you. That as John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that the world would not perish, but have everlasting life. I love how Pastor Tim Keller, who is now retired from the senior pastoral at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York, he says it this way, the gospel makes you realize that on one hand, you are more broken and more sinful than you dare imagine, and yet at the same time, more loved and more forgiven than you could ever dream. These two truths that coexist with one another is what happens when your heart and your mind opens up to that everything around me, the breath of my lungs, the beating of my heart, the complex systems in my body, the fact that I am flying Uh, hundreds of thousands of miles through space right now, orbiting the sun, and yet I'm still alive, and the right mix of oxygen on this planet and the gravitational mass that doesn't cause me to be crushed or to fly off is an absolute gift from God. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of wisdom. There is tremendous wisdom and insight and discernment that happens when we have a loving relationship with a God that first pursues us. And Nehemiah multiplies his impact by selecting different people focused on different areas of work who have proven themselves to be faithful in the past. But also, specifically, it says here that, that, that all of this has come out of their, their love for God. That they don't do it for their own gain. They're not in it for themselves. And because of that, they feel called to this work. Think about the people in your own life who are people that you deeply respect that perhaps have a vibrant relationship with God that you look at them and you say, gosh, there's something about them. They're not weird about it, but there's this genuineness. There's this authenticity that, you know, they make mistakes, yes, but they're quick to say, I'm sorry. They're quick to ask for forgiveness. They have this mix of humility and courage and it flows out of a relationship with God. Surround yourself with those people in your life. You know, here at Bel Air Church, we have a remarkable opportunity to invite everybody who calls Bel Air their church home to play a part in the work that God has called us to do. As I've been saying, God called Nehemiah to build a wall and God has called us at Bel Air Church to build a body, the body of Christ. We are in the middle of a church building season and I'm not talking about bricks and mortar, I'm talking about flesh and bone, souls saved by Jesus Christ. And this is the season for you to step out and to not just watch church, not just to observe church, not just to kind of be outside looking in, but to know that if you've said yes to Jesus and if you've been with us for a season, many of you who are watching us on television, many of us who've joined us on YouTube, many of us who just, you know, you hear us in your ear on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you've been with us for a season, you feel like this is your church family. It's time to get to work together. And we want to equip you to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. We want to help you focus on the work that God is calling you to do as part of this church family, but also to focus on what it could look like for you to be a follower of Christ in your spheres of influence, in your places of work. So in this season, perhaps some of you, you're going to take the step of faith and you're going to step out and you're going to go to bellair.org forward slash connect. And you're simply just going to make yourself known. That enables us to follow up with you on a regular basis, to give you opportunities. And this isn't just in person. You see, who we are as a church actually in 2021 reached people in 160 different countries around the globe. And you're one of them. And we believe that God is calling us to build you up, no matter what time zone you live in, to participate in the work that God is calling all of us to do. But we need to know you first. We wanna pray for you. We wanna encourage you. We wanna give you resources. And we wanna hear from you perhaps what, what areas in your life that you feel that God is calling you to have an impact in. And we can pair you with other people. This can happen online. It could be pairing you up with people whom we know who live in your city. We're starting to see communities popping up in different parts of the globe because people are discovering that 
that other followers of Christ who were connected to Baylor happened to live down the road from them. We envision, we can imagine community happening not only online across time zones, but in person, not just on our physical campus, but in cities around the globe. And we invite you as you follow Jesus to be faithful in life, to keep showing up. Yes, I, you, we all, we, we make mistakes. And faithfulness is not perfection. It's a, a direction of life that keeps coming back to God and God's longing and desire and joyful purpose for our lives. And that flows out of a relationship with God that, that sees worship not just as an hour on Sunday, but worship as a way of life. You see, Nehemiah, he multiplied his impact through the people then, and we want to multiply our impact through you, the people who are around the globe. Now, the second point, godly leaders, they measure what God cares about. Now, this is key. A lot of numbers that you can throw out, a lot of things that you can measure. What's so key about what Nehemiah does is he measures what God cares about. You see, you measure what matters to you. What you measure, what you look for, what you're focused on really determines what your heart cares about. What did Nehemiah care about? Verses four and five, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Verse five, then my God put it into my mind. Underline that, circle it, highlight it. Again, this constant theme that's run throughout this entire series. Nehemiah doesn't just get to work and then rest afterwards. He first rests in God. He spends time in prayer. He seeks God's counsel. He seeks God's direction. And out of that resting in God and resting in who God says he is, he gets this sense of what the work that God is calling him to do. Out of the overflow of the rest, he gets to work. In verse five, then my God put it in my mind to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who were the first to come back and I found the following written in it. I'm not gonna read the whole section, but verses six all the way through 69, begin to name people and categorize people. And these people were the first ones to, to leave Susa. They left exile. They left what they knew. They left their comforts. They left what they had inherited. And they stepped out in faith to make that 500-mile journey Many, many decades before Nehemiah came to rebuild the wall, they left this small remnant and they came to Jerusalem. They were the ones that first followed God's prompting long before Nehemiah followed God's prompting. And what's so remarkable is Nehemiah names them. You know, if you go into different organizations, you go into grocery stores, you go into hardware stores, you go into different places, often you can see on the wall a framed picture of a photograph of an employee and below that it says employee of the month. I've even seen in some organizations you go to and there's photographs of employee of each of the different months and then they've got employee of the year. I mean, I would imagine, I've never been 
an employee of the month before. I've never had my face, you know, framed and, you know, put up where everybody could see in the lobby. But I imagine if that was you, if, that, if you were the person that got recognized in that way, it would encourage you. It would fill you with a sense of accomplishment, of pride. You, you are recognized for your work. And here we have much more than just an employee of the month that is hung up on a wall that lasts for a month or for a year or in a company that eventually will go bankrupt. Here we have written in the living word of God for all of eternity, these faithful followers of God, these, these godly leaders who beyond Nehemiah, it was this community that, it was the community that did the impact. It wasn't just Nehemiah, he multiplied his impact, but he realized that all these people played an indispensable part in the whole. Again, without reading all the, the names, listen to the categories that he breaks these things down. Verses eight through 25, the people are listed and they're categorized by their families. In verses 26 through 38, the people are categorized by the city in which they live. Verses 39 through 42, the religious leaders and the priests are listed. Verses 43 through 45, the Levites and the singers, the worship leaders are, are mentioned. And 46 through 56, he lists all the temple servants. In 57 through 60, the descendants of Solomon are all mentioned. This is interesting. In verses 61 through 65, there are people who are listed that aren't of pure Jewish ancestry. People who have come in from different nations who are now part of this community, he lists them by name. And in 66 through 67, you know, some of the, the totals of the whole are given. In 68 through 69, he mentions how many livestock, how many cattle they have. And then we get to the grand total at the very end of this section. I want you to imagine this, 49,942 people. He knows exactly how many people have been entrusted to his care. How many people have been entrusted to be a part of the ongoing work that God has called them to do? You see, godly leaders, they measure what matters to God. And in any of our different spheres of influence, I can't tell you what to measure, what to count. But I want you to pray about it. You think about your family. And there might be numbers that normally in your family you, you care about, you know? What kind of grades did the kids get? Uh, how many vacation days do we get in this year? You know, how much do we save for college? And these are bad things. But what if you were simply to pray, God, would you put in my heart the things that you want me to measure? I can't tell you what that is, but Watch what happens when you do it. And it might not be this instant download. You might likely not hear a, an audible voice from heaven, but perhaps as you pray about it, maybe especially if you have people in your life that are encouragers that are praying for you, that perhaps you might come to this sense of, you know, this year, we want to pray as a family every day. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe you, you set that commitment and by the end of the year, you look back and you, 
you've marked it, you've measured it, and you said, how awesome. We prayed, let's say 300 out of 365 days. That's, that's like 10 times as much as all the years before it. You see, measure what matters to God. This is going to apply not just in families, it's going to apply in your, your business. We had an entrepreneur that came and spoke on our physical campus last week. And one of the things that he felt that God was leading him to as a general contractor that had many different offices, not only around California, but in different states, he felt this, this prompting, this calling that every Wednesday before any of the job sites would, would get to work in their construction, that whoever wanted to, this was absolutely optional, that people could show up and they could pray. And he wanted the people who were responsible for facilitating that prayer time to report back to him as the boss, as the CEO, as the founder also of this, this really large company, to report simply just how many people are showing up and praying. What a remarkable thing to measure that I never would have thought of. Another thing that he did, he shared, was when he first started, it was a company of one. And then it was a company of two and then five. And over the years, it has grown more and more. But he made a commitment right when he started that he wanted to pray for every single one of his employees. An interesting thing to measure. And so he knows in all the different branches, all the different offices, all the different subcontractors, he wants all their names so he can pray for them by name. He now has over a thousand people that he prays for on a weekly basis. It takes him four hours over the course of a week. He doesn't have time to do it all in one sitting, but he breaks it up throughout the week and he prays for all those people by name. And he says, when you pray for people, you love them. You sacrifice for them. You want to spend time pouring into them, encouraging them, providing the right environment. And he says, because of that, we have found that our retention rate is multiple times higher than the industry standard. He says, it all started simply because God called me to pray for them. And the dominoes began to fall that it has created this vibrant, God-glorifying environment. Not all the employees are believers. Of course, many don't show up for the prayer time, but all of them are prayed for. Watch what happens when you ask God, God, what do you want me to measure? What matters the most to you? For Nehemiah, it was the people. And we know Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And if he knew their names, likely he was praying for them. Okay, the third is this. The godly leaders, they meet the needs as they arise. After that section of him measuring and marking and accounting for all the people, it says this in verse 70. Now, some of the heads of ancestral houses contributed to the work. The governor that's him, gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, and 530 priestly robes. And some of the heads of ancestral houses gave in the building fund 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priestly robes. You see, godly leaders, they meet the needs as they arise. And what's so fascinating is the order in which we hear him recounting 
what was given and who gave first. It was the governor. It was the heads of households. And then it was the people. You see, godly leaders, they need to be the first ones, not the last ones, to meet the needs as they arise. When you realize that God is your boss, that God has called you to a work, there is no work that is beneath you. You know, some people, I know, I've seen it, they, they get promoted and they think, Haha, well, thank heavens, I don't have to do that work anymore. That's, that's beneath me, that's below me, that's for the junior execs, that's for the coordinators, that's for the, the admin assistants, that's for the janitors, I don't have to do that. But when you feel called by God. Again, you are promoted simply to the next thing. And sometimes the next thing has nothing to do with a title. It's just the work that is before you. You feel called to do the next thing and you do it with joy and with passion. And you meet the needs with your time, with your talent and with your treasure. Some of the most godly leaders are the ones who are willing to clean the toilet, who are willing to pick up trash, who are willing to show up early to stay up late, who are willing to move chairs, to break down things. They're not people who ever say, that's beneath me. But they simply meet the needs as they arise. What would it look like in your life with your family, in your household, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your sphere of influence, in your work? What would it look like for you to just be someone who is always open to meeting the needs around you? Now, sometimes the best way to meet the needs is to multiply your impact, right? But if you're willing to go first, people begin to see the type of leader that you are. A leader who's willing to meet needs, a leader who's willing to sacrifice time, talent, and treasure. And I do believe that when Nehemiah, as the governor of Judah, as he gave the heads of households, they were inspired and they gave. And then when all the people saw the heads of households being inspired, who were inspired by the governor, they gave as well. Many hands make light work. A transition had to happen. And Nehemiah rarely, unlike many people around the world, was able to make that transition well. Not because he was some superhuman leader, but because I believe he rested in God and because of that God called him to a work and because God called him to that work, God equipped him for that work as well. I believe that if we are open, that God will empower us with spiritual gifts. God will empower us with wisdom. God will empower us with abilities that, that transcend our education, our experience, but also God will provide people in your life to fill in the, the gaps, the weaknesses in your own leaderships so that collectively together, you can do so much more than just alone. And the section ends like this. Verse 72, and what the rest of the people gave, like I said, was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver and 67 priestly robes. Now, 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, they, in all of Israel, they settled into their towns. They didn't just build and move on. They built and put down roots. This is another key thing. There is something 
remarkable that happens when you are willing to put down roots in a place. Of course, with your family, but in your work or in your organization. Of course, God might call you away to a different season in a workplace or a different ministry. That calls you to your family, of course, for your entire life. But when you put down roots in a place, something remarkable happens. There can be long-term growth. We're going to see what happens next week because the people, 50,000 of them, in the wondrous worship, fearful love of God, they're focused on the work, they're faithful. When they put down roots, God does perhaps an even greater work than just building the wall. Again, we'll see that next week. But until then, let's pray as we continue on in this hour of worship. Jesus, we thank you that you've come before us, that you've modeled for us what it means to to give yourself away generously and lavishly. You gave your life. And so would we see in you someone who is always willing to meet the needs, not just of people around you, but all of humanity. May that inspire us. May that call us to the work you have for us this day and every day moving forward. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.